If you are burdened about moral dullness infecting the church, Dave Wurtzen's discussion of Jude verses 5 through 10 will help you become more than a cynical or discouraged bystander. You can start to become part of the healing. Listen carefully and see if we can discover some things that all of us should be afraid of. What are some of the reasons why we're thankful for Dad? What are the things that make us really thankful for a dad? And I'm sure that a lot of dads would kind of put their chest out and say, well, I've gone to work every single day for the last several years, the last 20 years or 25 years or 30 years or five years, and I provided a nice home and I provided clothes and I provided a living, a good, solid, material existence for my children. In fact, they not only have their needs met, they have more than that. And certainly the scripture would teach that that is something that we should be thankful to dads about. The scripture said that, says that if we don't take care of the needs of our own church family, that we're worse than unbelievers, which is a very strong statement. I think some other dads would poke their chest out and say, well, I'm thankful that I've taught my kids the ropes. I mean, I taught my kids compound interest and how that all works. My dad never did teach me that. But some of you dads would say, you know, I've really spent the time and my kids understand uh, how to keep from getting rooked by a used car salesman, how to look for an honest face. But a lot of dads would say, I've really shown my kids the works, and uh, they know the ropes of life, and I'm thankful that I was able to raise them to maturity in that area. And certainly that's an enviable thing. If you can raise your children practically so they understand some of the just practical uh, necessities of keeping a checkbook balanced, and I'm sure some of you wives swallow hard on that one and say, what do you mean my husband had to do that? Because some of you have to do that to keep everything straight in the family. But some of you dads have been very, very practical in teaching your children the ropes of life. We're going to keep studying the book of Jude today because I think that the book of Jude and the verses that we want to study together today teaches some very important things that every father has a responsibility to really teach his children in. In other words, if your children don't know how to keep their bank book balanced, uh, the bank will warn them very possibly they can marry a CPA or something or be able to take care of that need. If your children uh, don't have some of the necessities of life, uh, maybe they'll be motivated later on in their own life to be able to go out there and really work hard. If you fail to teach your children some of the dangers, some of the things that we really need to be afraid of from the book of Jude, then it's possible that your children will not just be destroyed in this life, but they could be destroyed in the life to come. You know, I think one of the most important things that a daddy needs to teach their children are, are some of the things in life that you need to be afraid of. You know, I think one of the greatest problems in our culture is that our kids aren't afraid of anything. I think a lot of the reason for that is because we have a lot of absentee fathers. You know, from the time that you're very, very small, I think there's a certain element where dad needs to put the fear of God into the lives of a child. For example, when they're very, very small, and we've used this illustration before, but it will underscore what I'm talking about with a legitimate fear. When our children are very, very small, you say, now, I don't want you to cross the street. I don't want you to walk across the street unless I'm holding your hand. 
and all of you can remember the first time your toddler went out there and you lost count of where they were, you started running all over the house, and suddenly you rushed outside and watched your two or three-year-old go toddling across the street, and you went, boy, am I glad there wasn't a car coming. And so dad goes out there, many times it's mom that goes out there, and you grab that little two-year-old, and you say, I told you not to go across the street, and there has to be a little little of board of learning on the seat of learning, and you really hit them very, very good because they disobeyed. Because you want them to be afraid to go across the street. You want them to be afraid to do that. Why? Because you're an old ogre, you're a big meanie? No. Because cars flatten two-year-olds. And if two-year-olds go across the street or a four-year-old or five-year-old go across the street and they don't have any fear about it, then there's going to be tremendous danger. I heard a dad just recently saying, I tell my teenager over and over again to drive defensively. This dad was just talking to me about it at lunch just a couple days ago. He says, I'm so concerned about my kids as they drive. I can tell from the looks of some of your eyes that you join with them in that fear. And this father said, you know, on the way to work the other day, I, I saw an accident. And a guy was driving along, and he lost control of the car, and the car spun out and hit an 18-wheeler. The 18-wheeler shot it all the way across the highway onto the other side of inc oncoming traffic, and bam, they were all, about three people were thrown into eternity. And all of us as parents, you know, are very concerned about that. And as our kids begin to drive, we warn them. We want them to be afraid. The tragedy is hardly any teenagers are afraid of driving. You see, they have an invincibility to their lives. They feel like it could never happen to me. And one of the things we said, maybe one of the greatest things that could happen to a teenager is to have a slight accident, is to have just an accident that you make it through, that you're not hurt at all, you're not scratched, you're not physically hurt, because then you'll realize, like all of us realize that have been in an accident, that you are driving along and all of a sudden it happens. You're just driving along and all of a sudden, quicker than you could ever imagine, it's pure reflex. And if it happens to hit you just right, you could be in eternity. And so as, as adults, almost every adult in this room is afraid, has a certain healthy respect of driving. And we try to communicate that to our younger children as they grow and get their licenses so that they will have a fear of driving. I'll never forget my mom. When I got my license, she said, Dave, it's just like I just handed you a loaded revolver. And a, and a revolver can be used to protect people. It can be used in a very positive way, but it can also be used in a very negative way, and it always needs to be respected. And when you're hurling down the highway, at that time it was about 65 miles an hour before the speed limit changed, it said, you're just like a speeding bullet, and don't ever forget that. I'll never forget that vivid, vivid imagery and my parents showed me a little bit about fear. Now, what we want to talk about today is not fear on the highway or fear to cross the street when we're a toddler, but I want to talk to you about some things that we really need to be afraid about, that I need to be afraid about today, that you need to be afraid about because they are intensely dangerous attitudes and actions to get involved in. And let's bow our heads and ask the Lord Jesus to teach us as we look at Jude, Chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verses 5 through 10. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask you that you would really guide me this morning as I open up your word. 
And Father, I realize in my own life and the lives of my brothers and sisters that it's very easy to be lackadaisical about some of the warning and some of the dangers that Jude, your brother, is going to talk to us about today. And I would ask you, Father, that, Lord, if you could keep one teenager that's here today from getting involved in some of these activities, if you could keep one dad from wandering away into this terrible pit of destruction, then it would be well worth our gathering together today. I'd ask you, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and cause us to respect it this morning and honor it this morning because we realize it's a voice from yourself. I would pray that you would wake us up in the midst of our modern world where many, many people are just sleeping in the ethical and moral area. They're taking things very lightly and they're acting as if there's no danger at all here. And yet there's awesome danger. And so, Father, we're thankful for the balance of your word. We're thankful for the comfort and for the love and the security that we've had in your word. But we also are very thankful that your word tells it like it is. It's not afraid to step on our toes when they need to be stepped on. It's not afraid to look at us very sternly because of love and to warn us about some things that could produce very serious judgment and disaster in our life. And so, Lord, to use your word this morning to teach us about some dangers that we need to fear so that we can be safe not only in this life but forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to talk to you about some reasons for destruction. Let's look at Jude chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. And let me read those verses before us before us, and then we'll study them together. Verse 5, though you already know all this, I want to underscore, the writer of Jude could assume that his audience knew the Old Testament scriptures. We cannot assume that in our modern world. And as a Bible church, I want to really encourage us as moms and dads, from the time that our children are very, very small, we need to be teaching them the history of the Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi because that's the history that God chose to reveal himself in. You see, if you don't know a few minor points of American history, you'll be okay. Now, if you teach history today, I hope you can do your job well. And I want my children to learn American history. But if you can't remember who the 15th president of the United States is, you'll probably be all right who he was. Okay? But if you don't know some of the details, some of the history, some of the stories of the Old Testament, you could be lost forever and ever because you could not, you might miss some of the values, some of the principles that God thinks are really important. And this is an awesome thing in our culture. We take the Old Testament very lightly. In fact, a lot of preachers do. But the writer of Jude could assume that the churches that he was writing to knew the Old Testament stories cold. And so what he's saying, I'm just going to remind you of some things that you already know. And that's the way it should be in our own church family. I should be able to just mention a story from the Old Testament and that whole block of material should come back to you. 
I'm amazed. A lot of times in counseling with young people, I'll say, like, I will be counseling, say, well, why don't you turn over, let's turn over to Genesis. And so a lot of kids, they don't know where Genesis is. That's not really their fault. That's because we've raised our children in a totally different tradition. Now, a lot of you won't pay attention, but some of you will. And you'll start taking this business of communicating a tradition, of communicating the stories of faith from the Old Testament very seriously. It's very important that our children know the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we can remind them of some of the moral teaching that's there. And we're going to look at two of those stories from the Old Testament today. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not believe. Now that's the warning of the wilderness generation. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now there's a story that talks about some people that are in hell forever and ever and ever. Now that's a story we really need to understand because that's an awesome reality to think of some individuals that are bound in chains forever and ever and ever. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if I mention the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah, what does that bring back to our mind? In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and they slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. We started with the first example that Jude gave us from the Old Testament, and that was the example of the wilderness generation and the peril of unbelief. And what the writer in Jude warned us about is that there was a whole generation of adults, the generation that was delivered from the land of Egypt, the generation that saw God do that mighty miracle when a whole nation was able to come through the Red Sea on dry land the nation that saw God provide food for them in the wilderness. They saw manna come right down out of heaven. They saw water delivered from the rock. They were given the Ten Commandments. They sat around Mount Sinai and saw God himself, the presence of God in the clouds, come down on that mountain. Moses disappeared for 40 days, and when he came back, he revealed God's moral law he revealed God's moral law to the children of Israel. God's people saw all of that. And yet when they came up to, when they came up to Canish Barnea and they sent the ten spies in, the twelve spies, ten came back and said, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. They're mighty warriors. It's almost like they were saying they're like Goliath in the story with David many years later. And we can't do it. We're going to stay right here. We're not going to be able to make it. 
Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can go up. We can do it. God is with us. We could sense that the fear of God was on the land. But the ten spies said to the people, no, we can't do it. And all the people began to gripe. All the people began to say, Moses, why didn't you deliver us out of Egypt? Why didn't you bring us? It would have been better for us to die in the wilderness. It would have been better for us to die as slaves in Egypt than to come up here and, be, and to have our own children slain by the Canaanites. And it started to spread through the camp like a cancer. They grumbled, they complained, they said, we can't do it, we're going to die. I want to share something with you. Grumbling, negative attitudes, is something that God hates. You know, Wayne Rucker on Tuesday, on Monday, got sprayed by some untreated water. He got sprayed by some untreated water. And on Tuesday, just like that, he came down with a horrible fever. Came down with a horrible fever. It went up about 104, 105. Now, how did that all start? There was a bacteria in that untreated water. And that bacteria attacked his body, and boy, it just spread in that environment until his whole body became diseased. You know, griping, rebellion, is just exactly like that bacteria. I've seen that happen in a camp among a staff. About the eighth or ninth week of camp, staff members start griping. They gripe about the food. They gripe about the program. They gripe about their accommodations and it begins to spread through the whole camp. It can happen in a church. You know, the whole atmosphere of our church is determined by your spirit and my spirit as we gather together. In other words, if we're in prayer during the week and we're coming together to really be built up, to be strengthened, and all of us really believe that God is among us, and that God will take care of us, and that God will provide for us. If we really believe that, then there's going to be a spirit of acceptance. There's going to be a spirit of love. Visitors that come to meet with us will sense that spirit that just permeates the group, and it will have a very powerful effect. In fact, a lot of unbelievers will be saved. It will strengthen us as we move out. But let's suppose we come, and there's a critical spirit. And I find in my own life that a critical spirit is an attitude that just comes over me. I didn't like that song. Why did we sing that? Or why did Dave mention that? And we start going like this. It starts going down. And that negative spirit begins to yank at your spirit. And the spirit of grumbling is very close to a spirit of rebellion. The spirit of grumbling is very, very close to a spirit of rebellion. And what it eventually causes us to do is to reject the spiritual leadership that God has given us. In other words, grumbling and negative spirits is what causes churches to divide. Now, what happens when a church divides? Many times, by a negative spirit, a group rejects spiritual leadership and they leave the fellowship of believers. The wilderness generation was like that. God had given them his law, a marvelous law. God had given Moses as his divinely 
revealed leader over its people. But the people came up to Kadesh Barnea. It should have been the time of greatest anticipation. It should have been the time that they entered the land. But they started to gripe. They started to be negative. They said, God can't do it. God can't provide for us. It's too dangerous. All of our children are going to die. And I want to share something with you. You know what God's judgment usually is? God's judgment is usually what the griper is asking for. You know what the wilderness generation in Numbers 14 said? They said, Moses, it would have been better for us to die in the wilderness. You know what God said? Fine, you can die in the wilderness. I want all of you to think very carefully. We all need to think about our hearts. You know what hell is going to be? Hell is going to be exactly what the unbeliever wants. An ungodly person doesn't want to read God's Word. There will be no reading of God's Word in hell. God's Word will not be present in hell. You'll never have to read the Bible in hell. Ungodly people don't like to fellowship with God's people. They don't like to be with other believers. It's agony to be with other believers. So that's what hell will be. You won't have to be with any unbelievers at all. You won't have to be present with them at all. Unbelievers, ungodly people don't want God to mess with their life. They don't want God to have anything to do with their life. They're angry with God. They want God to bug off. They want God to get away. That's exactly what hell will be. The total absence of the hand of God upon a place. And you see, when God takes his hand away, then all that's left is total darkness, because he is light, no love, no friendship, no companionship, just total darkness and ugly pain. Because every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. And so if you take God away, the children of Israel looked at God in the face, and they said, God, you can't do it. You can't bring us into the land. You're going to kill our children. God said, no, you've totally misjudged my character. I'll take care of your children. In fact, God said, your children that you thought would die by the Canaanites are going to be the ones that win the victories over the Canaanites. And you adults, 20 years old and up, that said that I couldn't provide for you, you'll die in the wilderness after I have provided for you for a whole lifetime. You're all going to live out your lifetime, and I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to show you that I, that I could do that. But then you're going to die without entering the promised land. You know, to me, that's one of the most fearsome stories in the whole Old Testament Scripture. Now, somebody asked me last week, were those people eternally lost? And I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the Scripture ever really answers that question clearly. The book of Hebrews doesn't answer that question. The Old Testament doesn't answer it. I've read several rabbis. The rabbis discuss that question extensively. Was the wilderness generation lost? Were they not? Rabbi so-and-so says, yes, they were because of their rebellion. Rabbi so-and-so says, no, they weren't because God said he would forgive them. We don't know. But there's one thing I know for sure about the wilderness generation. And one thing I can teach you with great confidence this morning. If I were you, and if you want to join with me, I don't want to have any part of rebellion.
I don't want to have any part of grumbling. I don't want to have any part of doubting God. Because I don't want a chance being part of a group that's like that. And so I want to make a commitment, and what I want you to join with me in, I want to make a commitment to a thankful spirit. I want to make a commitment to depending upon God to meet our needs. I want to make a commitment that God can bring us in to heaven forevermore. He can bring us in to the New Testament promised land. That's the warning, and that's the conviction that Jude is trying to get to the people he's writing to. We need to realize that God hates grumbling. Negative attitudes dull the spirit of a church or a family. Instead, we need to respect God's fatherly discipline and be thankful for His provision. The second part of The Reasons for Destruction on our next Truth Encounter is going to be heavy and controversial as Dave talks about Jude's exposure of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah.